listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. All right, good morning, everyone. Hey, welcome back to uh, our four-week series. We're week three of four weeks, looking at some big theological questions about Christmas. Um, just a quick recap, you know, while the kids are headed to the back, uh, this first week, Pastor Nathan was up here and walked us through the scripture's answer to the question, why did Jesus have to come to earth? Uh, we're basically asking that question of like, okay, why did we need to be rescued from our sin, from our shame by someone, you know, outside of us? Why couldn't we just do it ourselves? Uh, And then last week, uh, we walked through, okay, so God decided to come to earth. Why in this particular way? Why we talked about the incarnation? Why fully God and fully man? Now, next week, we're going to ask the question, like, why does all of this drive us to, to celebrate you know, especially in a, in a dark and often depressing world, um, why is this light? Why do we celebrate it? And, and by the way, just to remind you, next week, Christmas Eve morning, there's just one service at 9 a.m. where we'll tackle that question. And then in the evening, 4 o'clock and 6 o'clock for the Christmas Eve services, we're going to tackle a different question. So if you want to get, you know, if you want to collect all five, uh, you have to come both the morning and the evening, just, just so we're clear. So uh, this week, uh, we're going to tackle this question, why the virgin birth? Okay, granted, we needed someone to rescue us from outside, and, and God came and chose to come fully human, fully God. Well, but why be born of a virgin? Why does this matter? Is it important that there was no father involved in Jesus' birth? Um, does it matter if this isn't actually mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament? Is it still important, and, and what does it have to say for us? Now, I know I acknowledged this last week. Um, this is the awkward part of the Christmas story where, like, you're explaining it to five-year-olds, and suddenly you have to answer the wonderful way that babies are made. Um, and so I'm going to kind of leave things—I don't know how many young kids are still in here, but I'm going to leave things a little euphemistic so you can decide the rate at which you explain things to your own kids. So if you want them to not understand anything I'm saying today, just keep them in the dark until they're 18, I guess, and— then let them know. Um, Because none of us want to get that question. I mean, can you imagine Mary getting the question from Jesus when he was five years old? Like, where do babies come from? And she's like, well, in your case, uh, there's a little, I swear I'm not making this up, you know. All right, well, let's jump in. You know, when we moved into, when my wife and my daughter and I moved into the house that we're living in now, uh, pretty much everything needed to be replaced. New AC, uh, new heater, new water heater, new stove, new microwave, new oven, new refrigerator. Everything that plugged in was broken. Um, On the day we moved, the air conditioning went out, middle of July. And since there was so much that needed replacement, we were on the lookout for scratch and dent options right, that could save us a little bit of money that were a little cheaper than their less pristine quality uh, equivalents. And we were thrilled to find this great fridge for a couple hundred bucks less than we otherwise would have paid for it. It was an awesome deal until the fridge stopped working. But it was still under warranty um, because, you know, it had just been damaged in shipping or something like that with a scratch down the side. Still under warranty, so I called for a repair and a repair guy came out. And then I called again for a repair and a repair guy came out, and I called a third time for a repair, and a repair guy came out. Seven times I called for repairmen to come to our house to try to fix the refrigerator, and none of them were successful. 
And each time the guy said, you know what? I figured it out. Here's the problem. I fixed it. It's going to be fine. And I trusted him and I restocked the fridge. And we lost it again. And, and I didn't know what to do. I assumed, well, okay, we've learned seven ways how not to fix the fridge. So I'm, I'm figured the eighth guy will probably get it right. Or the ninth guy would probably get it right, right? Does this, that make sense to any of you? It made perfect sense to me, but not to my wife. When that seventh guy came out and worked on it, she just stood there like this and said, I don't believe you. Get us a new fridge. She was basically saying, I am tired of tweaking this thing. Uh, how about we transform it into a whole new fridge? And through sheer force of personality and a few strong words, we got a brand new fridge. It's great, brand new fridge. Not a single part in that fridge came from the old one. The only thing the two fridges had in common was the groceries on the inside. You know, I uh, sometimes think about the story of our own lives a lot like, well, trying to get something fixed, trying to get a refrigerator fixed. You can replace every component in the fridge and it still doesn't work until somebody comes and just sort of replaces the whole thing, stops trying to tweak it and just transforms it. If you're like me though, I tend to think that, well, no, I've got the power to do that myself and I'm willing to drag this out way longer than it should go. When the real solution is always and always has been Call in my wife. <laughs> She's going to get this thing fixed just like that. Now, just in our lives and in the story you know, that we just read, we get to watch as two people, as Mary and Joseph, uh, they both submit themselves to a, we'll call it a power outside of themselves. Power of God, the power that worked in this virgin birth. So we're going to jump in, tackle this question, why the virgin birth? I'm going to move through the question kind of in three big parts. First is understanding, like, what do we mean when we talk about the virgin birth? What are we talking about? Uh, second, we're going to take a few minutes to look at the Old Testament background to this. Matthew's quoting from Isaiah. How does all of that tie in? And then with those two questions out of the way, we can tackle the, the big question, which is why? You know, why the virgin birth? And why is this important today? And as we answer those questions. I'm just gonna keep trying to drive us towards this one big idea, this one main thought from the morning. And it's simply this, that the virgin birth isn't just about the virgin or just about the birth. It's really about the power of God to make things new. So the virgin birth is it's not just about the virgin and it's not even really about the birth. It's about the power of God, not just tweaking the world, but transforming it completely in Jesus. So you guys ready? Want to jump in? I don't know what you would have said or what I would have done if you'd said no. So assuming your silence is affirmative consent, let's jump in. Matthew 1 uh, verse 18. Did you notice when it was being read that the, the, this passage is written from a bit of a different perspective than the passage we looked at last week when we were in Luke? Luke's kind of story of this is an angel appearing to Mary before Jesus is conceived. Here it's to Joseph after the pregnancy has already become obvious. In Luke, after Mary gets this message from the angel, she up and takes off, uh, goes and visits a distant relative, uh, her aunt Elizabeth, and is gone for three months. When she gets back, when Mary returns to Nazareth, Joseph sees her for the first time in months, and something's different. 
See, they were betrothed. Verse 19 refers to Joseph as Mary's husband. Betrothed is kind of like an engagement, but it's a lot more binding uh, than our engagements today. There's a lot more social weight uh, and ceremony uh, to it than goes into modern engagements. Or at least I should say modern engagements back when I got engaged. Now, I mean, back then there was this whole back then, meaning back in Joseph's time, there was this whole dowry thing, you know, where you, uh, the, the wife's family would, would give some income towards starting the new family. Now there's just a whole ton of social investment into the whole Instagram thing where we all have to, you know, one-up each other with our engagement stories. Anyway, a lot of social pressure is what I'm trying to say uh, that goes into it. And this engagement, this betrothal is not really easy to, to break. They're all but married. And of course, we're not sure if Mary's told Joseph anything about the vision, uh, about the message from the angel. We don't know if she's told him anything about an impending pregnancy. I don't know how you would explain that without it sounding like you're trying to cover something up. So when Joseph sees her for the first time after a few months away, and it's obvious that something's changed, uh, he agonizes over what to do, and eventually decides he's going to divorce her quietly. Now, of course, Joseph could have gone through with the marriage, but you can imagine the dilemma that he's in. The woman he's betrothed to has gone to visit relatives for three months and comes back pregnant. They're all but married, and if she's already being unfaithful, then what does that say about their marriage to come? And Greek law, Roman law, Jewish law all commanded that in a situation like this, uh, yeah, you divorce your fiance and you make her pay for her sins by keeping the dowry. And that's the way it works. Now, Joseph, we're told, he doesn't really want to make a big public ordeal out of it. Doesn't want to subject her to the shame of the community. I mean, that's well within the law, but there's no need. And he can maintain his honor and divorce her quietly. And she can go live with distant relatives and, you know, make up some story about a young husband killed in a tragic accident or something like that to kind of start her life over again. So we don't know how much Mary told Joseph. Once it was obvious, did she, did she tell him? Did she explain like, no, and here's what happened. An angel came and told me that the, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Most High is, was going to overshadow me and, and this child that was conceived in me is the, the anointed one, the King, the Messiah, the Christ. He's the one that's going to save us and, and deliver us from our sins. Even if she had, it wasn't you know, her story uh, that convinced Joseph. It was his own angelic visitation, uh, this time in a dream. And the angel tells Joseph, hey, don't be afraid. It's the same thing the angel says to Mary. Don't be afraid. This child in you is from the Holy Spirit. To, to Joseph, he says, hey, don't be afraid to go ahead and marry Mary, because the child that's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And then the angel gives Joseph the same command that he gave Mary, name the child Jesus. And what exactly that name means and why the name Jesus is significant, we'll talk about that on, on Christmas Eve. Uh, but here, this story, so Joseph does what the angel commands, uh, I got to assume to the, the shame and the chagrin of his family, you can imagine Joseph standing up there in front of 
the family, the friends, the neighbors, the relatives all gathered for the wedding and his wife-to-be is very obviously pregnant. And by this time, word's getting around that she says, oh, no, 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 it was God. It's really, Joseph, you're buying all this? But to emphasize the, the divine nature of this whole story, to make sure there's no question at all, Matthew notes that even after Joseph and Mary are wed, they don't come together and consummate the marriage until after Jesus is born. It's quite the story, isn't it? A story that has been roundly criticized for 2,000 years for being kind of out there. Like, really? And I don't mean just criticism in recent years from as far back as during Jesus' own lifetime. Some of the people that he riled up accused him of being illegitimately born. They're like, yeah, why would we listen to you? We all know where you came from. Now, most commonly today, people will say, well, you know, the virgin birth story, it's a made-up story to try to cover, I don't know, Mary's affair with a Roman soldier, or maybe she was the victim of sexual assault or something like that. We'll just cover it up with this nice, easy story of a virgin birth. But actually, one of the ways that we can kind of begin to suspect that, you know, I think this story actually carries a bit of actual historical fact in it is that we're reading Jews telling this story to other Jews. And Jews would have been scandalized by this. They were scandalized by it. Uh, Matthew's actually taking a big risk, including this story, immediately in chapter one, you know, turning off the very people he's trying to reach and convince with the story of Jesus. One of the earliest defenders of Christianity was this guy named Justin Martyr, and he's writing about 100 years or so after Matthew wrote. And one of the things he wrote is this big dialogue between him, you know, he's a Greek Christian defending Christianity. It's a dialogue between him and this Jewish guy who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And one of the Jewish guy's main objections to Jesus is the story of the virgin birth. He calls it a shameful monstrosity. Because it sounds just like all those Greek stories about the many women that Zeus and the other gods, you know, came down and impregnated, either by seducing them or raping them or whatever. It's, it's not the kind of thing that a Jewish person would be fine with insinuating that Yahweh took part in. And we should note, as we're reading this, and if we've turned over to Luke, you know, Matthew and Luke are both careful to avoid any sort of hint of sexual union between God and Mary. Jesus is conceived from the Holy Spirit, not by the Holy Spirit, Matthew says. And the overshadowing word that, that Luke uses is, is just the word you use for when, like, somebody steps between you and the sun and overshadows you. Uh, it's just the power of the Most High. It's a metaphorical language. Uh, in other words, when we think of the virgin birth, we, we have to remember we are not talking about God having sex with a human woman who then gives birth to his child. That's the way all the old uh, pagan Greek myths go, whether it's the story of Perseus or Hercules or Bellerophon or Aeneas or Helen of Troy or I could keep going. It was pretty common. So Jesus is not a, a demigod. Right, a half-God, half-human, you know, one divine parent, one human parent. We talked about that last week when we addressed the question of why the incarnation? What do we mean by the incarnation? Uh, so this week, when we're talking about the virgin birth, we're, we're talking about the teaching that, 
Jesus was miraculously conceived in Mary's womb of the Holy Spirit, of the power of God. That Jesus is both born of God and born of mankind, born of Mary. Now, we kind of colloquially call it the virgin birth. More precisely, we, could, we should probably call the teaching the virgin conception, as a lot of, uh, especially female theologians, have pointed out to us guys in the room, nothing about the actual birth was out of the ordinary. It was probably still a very painful thing for Mary to go through. So calling it the virgin birth kind of makes it sound like it was this pristine experience, whatever. I'm going to keep calling it the virgin birth because that's how we all refer to it. But virgin conception is a little more accurate. At any rate, when Matthew is compiling the story of Jesus' life, he decides to include this part of Jesus' history, the virgin conception, the virgin birth, even at the risk of scandalizing the very people he's trying to reach. So why? Why? Why would Matthew include this story? Well, I think he does so because the story directly ties into one of the main points he tries to make throughout the whole, uh, the, his whole gospel, that, that God, in his power, is always present in the story of Israel, in the story of the world, always at work, and pretty often in surprising ways things we don't anticipate, or working in ways that we don't see coming. God is working in power in ways that will shock us, surprise us, sometimes even scandalize us. But you know, the way Matthew tells the story, he, he kind of implies that we really shouldn't be all that surprised that when God chooses to show up in person to enter into the world, he does, through, he does so through the power of the virgin birth. Look at verse 22. Matthew is reflecting on everything he's just recounted for us in verses 18 through 21, the, the message of the angel to Joseph and all of that. And then, and then Matthew says, you know, all of this, everything I just recounted to you, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He says, behold, the virgin shall conceive and, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He translates the Hebrew for the Greek audience, God with us. So Matthew, he's quoting from the greatest of all of the Hebrew prophets, from Isaiah. And the real fascinating part is that in the original Hebrew, the verse reads, this is Isaiah saying, look, this, this young woman, and he, he's gesturing at someone near, nearby him, look, this young woman is, a, is about to conceive and give birth to a son, and, and you, young lady, you're going to name him Emmanuel, God with us which actually in the context isn't, um, it's not a comfort. Because in the context, we're talking about a king, a wicked king who doesn't give a rip for, who, for worship of Yahweh. He just uses it to do whatever he wants. And, and when Isaiah comes to him and says, God's going to give you a sign, he's like, oh, you know, far be it for me to involve God in any of my affairs. He's like, all right, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. They're out where the washing is taking place, Isaiah and the king talking in this crowd. And so Isaiah says, look, there's, young women here, and by the time one of them can get married, conceive, have a child, and the child be old enough uh, to know right from wrong, uh, these two nations that are threatening us right now, they, you won't even have to worry about them. Of course, the whole thing, God with us, it sounds comforting, but in that context, he goes on to say in the chapter after, like, and by the way, when destruction comes on you and everything you've led here, that's because, remember, God's with us. 
whether you're willing to acknowledge him or not. Now, the fascinating part here uh, is that the, the word that I just translated as young woman, in, in Hebrew it re- refers to, you guessed it, a young woman. Usually with the sense that she's old enough to be married, but isn't married yet. And so there's a shade to the word that implies she hasn't yet become sexually active. Uh, it's just, this word is just the feminine equivalent. There's the same word for male, for young men. See, it's the context of the use of the word that tells us, okay, are we talking about, like, is this something specific, like virginity is a specific part of it, or is that just a shade of it that maybe comes into consideration? And in the original context, the virginity side of it is just not really emphasized at all. Though, we will find if we, if we flipped back to Isaiah chapter 7 here that uh, the English translators use the word virgin, so it kind of lines up with Matthew. Because the fascinating thing that happens is that Isaiah, written in Hebrew, a couple hundred years after he wrote it and a few hundred years before Jesus, translators come along and they take the Hebrew and they translate it into Greek. Because Jews by this time are growing up in largely Greek areas. They know Greek way better than they know Hebrew, so you need a copy of the Bible in your own language. Let's translate it into Greek. And when they're translating it, they chose a Greek word that leans more on this side, the shade of the word that is Virginity, virgin, you know, someone who's not yet sexually active. Now, even then, saying the virgin will conceive is not necessarily a prediction of virginal conception. It's a shorthand way of saying, hey, this young woman, still a virgin, but old enough to marry, she's going to marry soon, conceive a child, and give birth. Uh, If I were to... Uh, to illustrate, if I were to point at a particularly strong-willed child and say, this kid's going to rule the world, you know and I know I don't mean next week that kid is chairing the UN. I mean that in the natural progression and order of things, this child is going to grow up and eventually come to dominate most of our lives in some way, shape, or form. Right, so in the Old Testament context, it's saying, yeah, this, this young woman, this virgin, she's going to marry, conceive, give birth, and by the time that baby's old enough to tell right from wrong, you don't even have to worry about uh, these other nations that are oppressing us. That's all the original stuff. But the version that Matthew is quoting from here in chapter 1 is the Greek translation. So he's quoting it, a virgin will conceive, bear a child. So all of this, what I'm trying to say is we need to be a little bit careful when we say that the Old Testament predicts that the Messiah will be born through a virginal conception. You remember the dialogue I mentioned earlier between the Greek guy and the Jewish guy? The Greek guy says that Isaiah predicted Jesus would be born of a virgin, and he reads the Greek text of Isaiah to this Jewish guy. He says, Look, it says right here, he'll be born of a virgin. And the Jewish guy says, Why don't you read it in Hebrew? It says, Someone will be born of a young woman, and that's already been fulfilled. So, bottom line here as we consider how the Old Testament, you know, works itself into Matthew, um, it's more accurate to say that, that Matthew, as he's reading Isaiah, noting the use of the words there, a virgin will conceive, and thinking back to the circumstances of Jesus's birth, he's saying, wow, it's, it's almost like Jesus's birth kind of rhymes with what happened back in Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, it's like they're, they're, they're parallels. They 
doesn't that sound a lot like something you've read before, a type of fulfillment? Often when Matthew uses the word uh, fulfilled, like he does here, when he says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, he means it in this rhyming sense of the, the, doesn't this remind you of what happened in Israel's story in the past Uh, kind of sense? You know, yeah, that story was about someone else at a different place at a different time, but don't you see the parallels with Jesus? And every time he does this, he says, don't you see the parallels with Jesus? And don't you notice how both are signs that God is working in power to deliver his people? See, the virgin birth, it's not just about the virgin or just about the birth. It's really about God in power making everything new. In Jesus, in Emmanuel, God making everything everything new. That's the the real point of the story of the virgin birth. So when we get to the the final question, why the virgin birth? This is what we come down to. It's not just about the virgin or about the birth. It's about God in power making everything new. And though this subject um, never comes up again in the New Testament, uh, Jesus never makes it the basis of his preaching. He never gets up, gets up and says, guys, immaculately born, you got to listen to me, or anything like that. Uh, 2,000 years, even though it never comes up again, 2,000 years of reflection on the virgin birth has uh, led most theologians to recognize, you know, if Jesus had been born in the, the natural way of Joseph and Mary, It's hard to see how Jesus would then have been born sinless. Part of what Christians have believed about Jesus from the very beginning, because it's clearly taught in the New Testament, uh, is that Jesus perfectly obeyed the will of God, the law of God, and was completely without sin. Not only completely without ever having committed any sin, but was not even born with the natural tendency towards sin that you and I are born with. Uh, We call that a a sin nature. It's our uh, proclivity to, to, you know, break everything we touch. Uh, As one guy puts it, it, it's that little voice inside of us that sees a brand new car and is like, I could scratch that. The human propensity to foul things up, he says. Uh, Or as older theologians called it, we're all like uh, like concave mirrors, you know, those mirrors that kind of curve in, so any light that comes into it is focused to a a point in the middle. We're all like concave mirrors curved in on ourselves where everything we do is self-focused. That's the sin nature that we're born with. It's not just that we, you know, don't operate the way the creator intended, it's that all of our parts are broken as well except Jesus. Jesus was born without the sin nature that each of us inherited because Jesus was conceived by the, uh, the power of God, circumventing the, the natural way. He was born without that bent towards sinning uh, that you and I are born with. He was born free to obey instead of like we are condemned to always disobey. In essence, and, and the Apostle Paul really works this out in his letters, in, in essence, Jesus is a kind of a restart or a redo. He's an Adam in the garden again, do-over. 
Except he's not in a perfect paradise with only one law, don't eat the fruit. He's born into a world of oppression and darkness, born as a member of a persecuted minority group, both ethnically and religiously persecuted. Jesus is born under siege, already under threat, and born to become a refugee before he's even old enough to walk. He has to flee internationally. He's born into a world of trouble and sin, but where Adam fails, Jesus succeeds. And because he succeeds, he's qualified to be our substitute on our behalf, to live in our place, to die in our place, and to rise again in our place. See, the the virgin birth, when we play it all the way out to the end, it's not necessarily about a, a miracle, Um, it's not even necessarily about a miracle that on the face of it seems kind of like a little ludicrous. Like, why? I mean, if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, the virgin birth is hardly a a miracle in comparison. The virgin birth, when we play it all the way out to the end, is about the power of God. It's about the power of God to conceive life in an empty womb, to raise life from an empty tomb, and to give life to sinners like me and like you. See, the, the same power that brings Jesus into the world, the same power that brings Jesus back to life is the same power that brings new life in us. So if we ask why the virgin birth, I'd say, well, because the virgin birth shows the power of God, the power of God to take the initiative, to be the first to move. It shows from the very beginning that in Jesus, God is pursuing us. He's identifying with us. He's offering us life through his own self-sacrificial love. I mean, salvation is always God's act first. God is always moving first. It's never our own effort, and that's nowhere more clearly demonstrated than in the virgin birth. Uh, Think about it. Neither Mary nor Joseph could take any initiative or do anything to make it happen. Salvation from the very beginning is purely God's grace and God's initiative, God giving new life through his Spirit just like with us. Which means God is going to act when God is going to act. He's going to give life when he chooses to give life. Now, we're still part of it. We still invite people to the new life that God already has for them, but he's the one who chooses whether or not now or then is the moment when new life arises in any one of us or in the people that we love. Our responsibility, our response It's just like Mary, just like Joseph. We just respond to God's grace with faith and obedience. Mary says, do what you said you're going to do. And Joseph gets up and does exactly what the angel of the Lord commanded him. Hopefully, just like us. See, the virgin birth, it's not just about the virgin or just about the birth. It's really about the power of God to make everything new. See, sometimes you you have to stop tweaking things and just trying to do little repairs and appeal to somebody, you know, bigger than the repairman. 
to completely transform it and, and make it completely new. So I don't know if you're the type of person who's already completely given up on the whole idea of self-improvement or if your Christmas wish list is 30 self-help books. But either way, if, if you're at the point where you're tired of trying to improve yourself and replace yourself, you know, part by part, hoping if you swap out this component, it's, it, it, things are finally going to work, you know, trade in, well, I live here, maybe I'll go live there, or I'm married to this person, maybe I'll go marry that person, or I do this job, well, maybe I'll go marry that job, or marry that job, go do that job, or you know what I'm trying to say, maybe I... Uh, have this life goal and I'm gonna trade it for that life goal or this productivity method and I'm gonna trade it for that one. If you're tired of constantly trying to tweak things, thinking, well, maybe after the eighth or the ninth or the 10th try, it'll work. It's time to come to the one who has already worked to transform and bring new life. It's just there waiting. That's the miracle of the virgin birth. So let's pray, Father. We don't need another repairman, we just need you. You have already shown up in power in bringing Jesus and in raising Jesus from the dead. Help us to rest in that power that through your power working in us, we can be made new, now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.